I think we got it. Okay, I think we're streaming on Rockfin and YouTube right now. We should be set. So let's get this thing started. Except it says... Oh, man, this is killing me. It says that we are discussing Haiti, which is not correct. Okay, Mint Press. Let me just fix this. Press News Live Stream with Dan Cohen on... Ukraine crisis with Dan Cohen and Scott Ritter. I don't see any of the audience people chiming in, though. Did we lose them? Um, he, I don't know. Let's see. <laughs> no, I think we're good now. Okay. okay. Um, so, all right, let's, let's get it started. Apologies for the delays, everyone. Um, and technical difficulties, but we're straightened out. So today we're going to be talking about the Ukraine crisis, which is, you know, in depending on how you measure it, day two or day, um, what, like, you know, two and a half thousand, if you're counting back to 2014, which I think is where we really need to, to begin. And maybe even before that to, you know, the, the origins of NATO. Um, so we'll get into all of that with, with Scott Ritter, who's a really great guest, um, you know, someone who knows what war is, has been in war, has, you know, has, has a lot of experience um, in, in these kinds of fields uh, as a former UN weapons inspector and, and Marine. So thanks a lot, Scott, for joining me and, and uh, being patient with the technical error issues here. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I think the first thing I want to do, there's so much to unpack, but I feel like maybe the first thing to do is just react to this statement from um, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg that just came out about an hour ago. So I'm going to play it and and I want to kind of get your reaction and, and we can go from there. Um, so let me just uh, pull it up. Here we go. Everyone can see that. All right. All right, so here's NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. This was two hours ago. Infrastructure from allies that joined after 1997. We are facing a new normal in European security. Where Russia openly contests the European security order and uses force to pursue its objectives. The world will hold Russia and Belarus accountable for their actions. Russia as the aggressor. Belarus as the enabler. President Putin's uh, decision to pursue his aggression against Ukraine is a terrible strategic mistake for which Russia would pay a severe price for years to come. Okay, so, you know, I, I mean, you heard the term there, new normal. We're facing a new normal in European security. That's according to the head of NATO. Um, that seems like a pretty powerful, you know, important statement. What do you, yeah, what do you think of that, Scott? Well, it's not the first time I've heard it. And uh, the person that I heard it from for the first time wasn't Jan Stoltenberg. It was uh, Vladimir Putin when he spoke to the Munich Security Council uh, Conference 
back in uh, 2007 when he challenged the unitary uh, world order uh, that led by the United States in a single polar world. And he said, no, that day is gone. That ship has sailed. There is a new world order and a need for a new European security order that uh, goes beyond the NATO concept. Um, and, and, and Putin put the marker on the table. He said, that what you're doing here is wrong. You know, people keep saying, uh, Russia's the aggressor. They had no choice. What do you call a, an ostensibly defensive military alliance, which lies about its intentions to expand in a post-Cold War era, and then goes on the offensive, bombing a European capital, Belgrade. I mean, everybody's sitting there going, oh, Kiev is being bombed first time in Europe. No, NATO bombed Belgrade without any authority from the Security Council in violation of international law, doing the exact same thing that they accused, they're accusing Russia of doing now. Uh, NATO said, oh, you can't create these independent states of Lugansk and, Don and, and, and Donetsk. Um, well, yes, you can, because you guys created the independent state of Kosovo, carved it right out of Serbia, again, with no founding in international law, nothing. Um, and then NATO went on to basically legitimize the illegal invasion and occupation of Iraq, even though NATO as an organization didn't participate, several NATO members did. And in 2004, a few months after the occupation, NATO legitimized the occupation by creating the NATO training mission in Iraq. NATO went into Afghanistan. How does a North Atlantic treaty organization end up in Afghanistan? Uh, NATO bombed Libya for the sole purpose of achieving regime change. And so now Russia's looking at this saying, uh, we're not happy with this offensive military organization, which is expanding to our borders. And every time they absorb a member, what happens? They automatically get covered by the shroud of Article 5, which means that if Russia uh, took action against one nation who might overstep their boundary, let's say a Baltic state who has a grudge to bear, or Poland, who you know definitely has a burr in their saddle about Russia, all of NATO is supposed to come in. That is a threat. That is an existential threat to Russia. And so, you know, when Stoltenberg says a, a new you know, European security order is, is, is being promulgated by Russia, he's right. Russia's fed up with this. That's why Russia said, y'all got to go back to 1997 borders before you started expanding. Uh, that doesn't mean that you dismantle NATO. Russia's not calling for the dismantlement of NATO. What they're saying, though, is all those British troops, French troops, American troops uh, that are currently deployed in Poland and in the Baltic states got to go home, get away from our borders. Um, and Russia, I, what, I think what... This Ukraine situation, again, let me just start by saying this is a tragedy. Anytime there's a war, it's a human tragedy. I'm not sitting here cheering for war. It's literally the worst possible option. But they, they teach you in martial arts that when you, uh, you get in a fight with someone and you back them into a corner, um, they're going to kick your butt because they got nothing to lose. Russia literally was backed into a corner. And so Russia is responding the only way they can. And People are only talking today about Ukraine. You know, this is about Ukraine. This is about Russia denying Ukraine NATO members. No, this is about a new order in Europe. NATO refuses to engage Russia on uh, the, the topic of returning the 1997 orders and all this. They say it's unthinkable to even engage that way. Well, Russia's changing the geopolitical reality. They've already changed it with Belarus. 
if you recall two years ago, everybody was talking about Belarus being plucked away from Russia by Europe. Um, Mike Pompeo visited and sold them liquid natural gas. And uh, there was a color revolution that was going to happen after the August 2020 election. And uh, what, 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 what happened since then? Belarus is a, a Russian um, client state right now. Russia took one of their elite offensive organizations, the First Guards Tank Army, and permanently redeployed it to Belarus so that it threatens NATO right now. And what is going to happen after they defeat Ukraine, if they defeat Ukraine? Same thing. They're going to turn Ukraine into a client state with Russian offensive strike capability there. They're recreating the Cold War boundary that formerly existed in the border between West and East Germany. This time they're putting that boundary uh, on the Ukraine border all the way up through Belarus. Um, and then they're going to sit there and stare NATO down. Now, Russia has spent the last 20 years building one of the premier uh, combined arms armies the world has ever seen. And we're seeing it in Ukraine. I know there's people watching saying, oh, they're getting their butts kicked. It's day two. Um, you know, don't, don't take your news off of uh, Twitter or social media. Uh, and I also ask people, how many briefings has the Russian Ministry of Defense given uh, to update the world on what's going? None, because they don't care. They're, laying, they're, they're, they're doing their plan on their timetable. They don't care about us. They don't, they've given up. The day of trying to convince the West to uh, become mature about this is over. But when this is done, Russia will have their military on NATO's border, not on their border. And now NATO is going to have to decide, do we want to modernize? Do we want to spend $100 billion recreating that which we dismantled after the end of the Cold War? And I'm fairly certain that the vast majority of Europe is going to say no. And the beauty of Europe right now is that most of these leaders are democratically elected, which means they're beholden to a constituency. Europe's at a disadvantage here. You know that, right? You know, Putin is a guy who's been in power for two decades, and he's going to be in power for at least a decade and a half more. That's continuity of, of policy. Europe, on the other hand, is ruled by political leaders. You get voted out of office, and every time they get voted out of office, a new political party comes in with new policies. So they're seesawing back and forth. Same thing with the United States. Putin has dealt with five American presidents, all of whom had a different policy towards Russia. Putin's had the same policy. So Putin has the luxury of knowing that over the course of the next, next decade, his policy is not going to change. Europe and the United States, on the other hand, are. And especially when these sanctions kick back and start hurting Americans, when gas prices go through the roof, when our inflation rate hits 12 percent, when European economy collapses, and then as a result, our markets collapse. Um, you know, James Carville once famously said, it's the economy, stupid. Americans can't even tell you where Ukraine is on a map. Uh, and they're going to sit there and watch their economy tank because of Ukraine. And I'm fairly certain that at some point in time, Europe's going to say, you know, those 1997 boundary things that Russia wants? Sounds like a pretty good idea. We'll trade that for Russia pulling its troops out of Belarus and Ukraine, and we'll have a new European security order. Putin's a hell of a lot more smart than uh, smarter than John Stoltenberg. I'll tell you that. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's well, there's so there's a lot to you know unpack about what you just just talked about. A really kind of um, uh, concise you know history of how we've we or you know the kind of geopolitical shift that we've seen in the in the the Putin era, basically you know this century, um, you know this this millennium to this point, and it seems like we're kind of at a at a watershed moment um, where uh, you know 
basically Putin is kind of, you know, dictating the terms after being pushed into a corner. And as you said, you know, the Russians aren't really saying anything. This is day two. And it seems to me that they're, you know, they're still, their military is kind of operating with one hand behind its back. We're not seeing the full force of, of the Russian military, which is extremely powerful. And, you know, unlike the U.S. military, which ends up getting involved in places all over the world, uh, Russia is in its own theater. I mean, so, you know, it's it's really Russia's home court. Not just own theater. Russia's in their brother's house. They love Ukraine. They love Ukrainians. They don't want to be doing this. This breaks their heart. If you know anything about Russian military doctrine, the artillery is the king of the battle, the queen of the battle. Uh, whatever the new gender you use for artillery is, um, but I, I don't want to get in trouble here. But uh, you know, the, the 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 concept of massive preparatory fires that precede offensive operations is what makes the Russian army the most terrifying army in Europe. There have been no massive preparatory fires. Why? Russia does not want to kill civilians. They don't want to damage infrastructure. Um, and so right off the bat, Russia has taken away its main advantage. The second thing Russia has going for it is electronic warfare capability. If this was a real war, Russia would have shut down the internet, shut down communications, and Ukraine would be black. No one would be getting anything out of it. Not these, you know, Russia's playing a, you know, it, it, the propaganda war against Russia is deep because right now CNN, Fox, and everybody else is just broadcasting pro-Ukrainian um, you know, propaganda. On the internet, they're throwing out these clips that, you know, show you know, dead Russian soldiers and this, creating myths about the uh, ghost of Kiev and, you know, the brave 13 uh, who were replaced apparently the 300 at Thermopylae by telling the Russians to F off and then dying. Uh, we don't know if any of this is true, but it's shaping public affairs. Normally in a military situation, you want to shut that down. Russia didn't. You want to know why? because they don't want the Ukrainians to panic. They don't want the women and children to sit there in the dark and be afraid. They want them to be able to communicate with their family, communicate with their loved ones. It's hurting Russia. Russia is paying a blood price for this. The, the guys that are dying are dying because the Ukrainian army can communicate right now and organize its resistance. Whereas if the Russians were really going to war, the Ukrainian army would be deaf, dumb, and blind and dying by the score. The Russians don't want to kill Ukrainian soldiers. They want them to surrender. They want them to give up. So, you know, people need to understand that, you know, far from being the brutal dictator who's unleashing hell on, you know, Europe for the first time since the Second World War, Putin is restrained. You know what Americans would be doing in this, this thing? We saw it in Iraq. You know how our convoys went down the road and any car that was on the road, we ran them off, shot them up, gunned them down. That's how we roll in. We roll in heavy. You think Americans would actually, um, you know, take take casualties deliberately to, to spare civilians? No, it's the opposite around. We believe that civilian casualties are collateral damage in the accomplishment of a military mission. We would be slaughtering Ukrainians as we slaughtered Iraqis, as we slaughtered Afghanis, because we don't give a damn. Excuse my language. Um, that doesn't mean that we're war criminals. It just means we have a, diff a different interpretation of what international humanitarian law means in a war zone. That doesn't mean that Russians aren't brutal. Believe me, they can be. Ask the Chechen. But, um, you know, but the fact is, 
that this isn't a war like other wars. This is Russia invading a brother Slav country, a country that has a deep historical, deep historical roots. I mean, people dismiss Vladimir Putin's speech because it was given by Vladimir Putin. But if you erase the name and you erase the context and play that speech just out of the blue, the, the fact is it could be a lecture at any university in this country that would be seen as credible, rational, sane. But because Putin said it, we dismiss it, we ignore it. It's, you know, Putin talked from the heart. There was no teleprompter telling Putin. He read from the script when they, when they went, and he pushed that aside, he stared in the camera and spent 58 minutes talking from the heart. Get an American politician to do that. Impossible. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of unthinkable. I mean, especially, you know, compare that to what we see from, from Biden, who can barely string a sentence together and, you know, remember. I apologize for laughing. I, my, my wife has told me not to laugh like that, to try to be impartial. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, you know, it's hard not to laugh, honestly. I mean, and it's not, you know, it's not a matter of making fun of the elderly or being crude. It's just that, you know, I mean, this is the guy who's, you know, this is the president of the United States and he's and he's not really capable. So to see that contrast with Putin, who, you know, doesn't need a teleprompter. And as you just described, can just, you know, go for and just talk to the camera for an hour and, and just explain things at, at, at in such a, um, an erudite way. Um, you know, I think one of the other things, important things to talk about and understanding how we got to this point. I mean, we should, you know, go back to, to 2014, but but even just. You know, recently we saw Vladimir Zelensky, the the president of Ukraine, just last week at the Munich Security Conference, not only reiterating that he wants to join NATO, but also talking about obtaining nuclear weapons. And so, you know, I see there are quite a few people um, kind of echoing or soft pedaling the kind of mainstream narrative in the U.S., what you'll see on CNN, that this is. Um, you know, a mad dictator in, in this unprovoked illegal invasion. Um, but, you know, I mean, we have to be really honest about what that the prospect of Ukraine joining NATO and and reobtaining nuclear weapons is. That's an existential threat. And, you know, I mean, I would imagine there's probably a fair amount of Russian nationalists who wanted this to happen before, you know, that knew that that Russia was totally capable of just destroying the military capabilities of um, Ukraine and basically that NATO would not be able to really do anything, um, even though, of course, Ukraine is not a NATO member, but basically the West, the EU countries, the NATO members, the U.S. were basically just going to have to eat it. Um, you know, what is so, you know, now we see some posturing from the U.S. They're talking about sanctions, which, of course, will end up hurting inevitably the U.S. economy. And even Biden administration officials have said that they, you know, they can't really do the full the full set of sanctions that they'd like. There's been talk about um, kicking Russia out of the SWIFT system like they did to Iran um, and I think to Venezuela. But, you know, Russia is a much, much more uh, integral part of the world economy. The U.S., you know, buys buys um, uh, petrol from um, and different products from uh, for manufacturing from Russia. And, you know, as you pointed out, the the, the global economy, including the U.S., is going to take a hit and that's going to hurt Biden's already, you know, abysmal ratings. Um, and, 
you know, we got mid we have a midterm elections coming. Um, and then, you know, the, of course, presidential elections, not terribly far away. I mean, still a few years. So overall, do you get the sense that the West is kind of, you know, this is more, most of what they're saying is posturing and is kind of hot air. There's some kind of paper tiger effect going on or, or, you know, what do you think? Well, I wouldn't call NATO in the United States a paper tiger per se. There's, there's, the United States has the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world. And um, these, these weapons are, you know, ready to be fired today. Um, our, our submarine uh, missile capability is, is the best in the world. Um, so, you know, we're not a joke. In our, in our military, I mean, we spend $760 billion a year on the military. So we, we should have some capability. But what people need to understand is that at the end of the Cold War, certain decisions were made. And one of the decisions was to dismantle much of the massive conventional um, capability we had for fighting a large-scale war uh, in Europe, for instance, dismantle that. Uh, we got rid of most of our armored divisions. Uh, we reorganized to a brigade structure. Um, and then 9-11 came. And after 9-11, the military focused solely on the low-intensity conflict mission in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, we restructured the military from everything, from the ground up. We were recruiting people solely to fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, our equipment that we were procuring was solely focused on the Middle East low-intensity conflict fight, um, everything about it which means we forgot how to do what we used to be the best in the world at, which was large-scale ground war in Europe. Um, meanwhile, NATO did the same thing. I mean, Germany used to have 12 armored divisions. <laughs> right. Now they have 12 brigades, two of which are armored, none of which can get out of the barracks because none of their equipment works uh, because they've allowed it to, you know, they've got a big air force, 80% of their airplanes stay on ground because it can't be maintained to a sufficient level to, uh, to fly up. So the, um, the fact of the matter is that the United States and NATO today are, are literally a, a shadow of their former strength when it comes to conventional military. Russia, on the other hand, disarmed after the Cold War, but after um, Putin's speech in 2007, when he got no response, Russia began the process of rebuilding. You know, everybody talks about the Georgian-Russia War of 2008 as a Russian victory. It was a humiliation of Russia. Their army did not perform well at all. Um, you know, the, it could have gotten a lot worse for Russia. And that was a wake-up call. And so from 2008 to 2014, we saw a dramatic restructuring of the Russian military so that the Russian military that moved into Crimea, the little green men, they, they were eons better than what happened in 2008. And the Russian military that's going in today is eons better than what was going on in 2008. So we, we have a situation where NATO has bitten off more than they more than they can chew, um, they, they, there is no muscle be, be behind uh, behind NATO, and Russia is calling their bluff. Um, and so, so we have a lot of hot air going out from uh, from Stoltenberg, from Biden, from uh, from 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 all these European politicians about the 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 strength that they uh, that they currently enjoy. They they don't enjoy that strength. What they do have, though, are nuclear weapons. And this, this is the, the real risk here. You talked about Ukraine and uh, wanting nuclear weapons. You know, that, that, that 
Zelensky's comments came out of a um, discussion he had about how the West abandoned Ukraine, uh, that Ukraine, the noble Ukraine, um, you know, in in, two, in 1994, signed the um, uh, Budapest Agreement, I believe it was, uh, that, that guaranteed their security, that they give up their nuclear weapons, the Russians and the Americans and the British and the French and the world guarantees their security as a neutral state, by the way. Um, <laughs> people tend to forget about that. Uh, but the other thing that, that people don't understand the history of, the, of, of, of that agreement Right, right. Ukraine had already agreed to give, first of all, Ukraine never had operational control of any nuclear weapon. When the Soviet Union collapsed, there were nuclear weapons. There were thousands of nuclear weapons on Ukrainian soil. Most right, of them were right. tactical nuclear weapons that the Russians immediately took away. Yeah, the strategic yeah. nuclear weapons, the launch codes, the PAL, uh, the, the passive uh, uh, security devices, et cetera, all controlled by the Russians. And the Russians told the Ukrainians, if you try to influence this, we will kill you. Uh, you. You don't get nuclear weapons. Big boys get nuclear weapons. Little boys don't get nuclear weapons. Stay away. Um, and so, and then the other thing is Ukraine made the decision. They said, we understand we will not get global recognition unless we disarm, you get rid of these nuclear weapons that are on our soil. Uh, they made that decision in 1991. In 1992, they made the same decision. Something happened at the end of 1992, 1993. It's called corruption. It's what Ukraine's known best for. And the parliament sat there and said, we're running this giant grift against the world where they're sending us money and we enrich ourselves. Every member of parliament had a villa, a mansion, three cars, a staff paid for by the U.S. taxpayer. They said, how can we get more money? We can scream and moan about nuclear weapons, that we can make it conditional to get rid of the nuclear weapons so we get the security thing, but it's really about getting money. They got a lot of money. The U.S. gave them over nearly $500 million to, uh, to, to, get, to give up their nuclear weapons as a bribe. The Russians forgave $1.9 billion in debt for the same thing. Uh, this was a grift, a grift. It had nothing to do with security or anything. It was a giant grift run by the most corrupt nation in Europe. That's the truth about it. Ukraine never had nuclear weapons. So for Zelensky to sit there reimagine as if Ukraine gave up weapons that would have had they retained them, given them security is absurd in the extreme. But it's also created the notion that Ukraine deserves to have nuclear weapons because of the threat posed by Russia. Um, what, we, what, what Zelensky failed to tell the world is that Ukraine is a member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And that when Ukraine joined the Non-Proliferation Treaty, it did so as a non-nuclear weapons state. And that for Ukraine to go down the path that he wants, they would have to leave the non-proliferation treaty, making them a rogue state on par with North Korea. So that's the way it should be. But you have so many people in the West and everything saying, yeah, no, 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 Ukraine should have nuclear weapons because they could stand up to Russia. This is very dangerous from a non-proliferation standpoint. People who believe in nuclear non-proliferation shouldn't be supporting any of this nonsense. You know what else happened today? Biden stopped all arms control negotiations with Russia. So they're done. Which means now, as, as with this pressure building up, they were talking about reinstituting the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. Quick history lesson. I was uh, literally the first U.S. inspector on Soviet soil to implement the INF Treaty. So it's one of my big highlights in my resume. Um, I enjoy that little, the, the, that little piece of history there. Um, there were 
a whole bunch of better qualified guys that came after me, but I was the first one. <laughs> we got rid of a class of nuclear weapons that were threatening the world with global annihilation. Uh, in the 1980s, um, I mean, a lot of people today don't realize this, especially the younger generation. We were pumping these weapons in uh, to Europe. The Soviet Union deployed a category of weapon called the SS-20. It had three nuclear weapons. They had hundreds of them. Every European city was targeted. The United States responded with the Persian missile, which could reach Moscow in less than 12 minutes. And by, by threatening Moscow in less than 12 minutes, you take away the decision-making cycle, which means that if there's ever a, a, a false radar hit or whatever, the Russian leadership doesn't have the luxury of 45 minutes to sit there and determine whether it's a fake that you get with the launch of strategic weapons. You got basically five minutes to make a decision, life or death decision, and they're going to make a mistake eventually. So sanity prevailed. And the United States and the Soviet Union said, we're getting rid of these weapons. And they did. And Europe could sleep easy at night. Well, memories are short, apparently, because Europe supported Donald Trump's unilateral withdrawal from the INF Treaty in August of, I think, 2019. The treaty's gone. What did the first thing the Americans did after they withdrew? They tested an INF Treaty system. So that means they were planning this the whole time, which what the Russians were saying. Now we're going to deploy the system to Europe which means the Russians are gonna respond with their own system and we return to the nightmare period. Um, an, an exercise people should understand is Able Archer 83. It was a NATO exercise. It almost brought about the end of the world because NATO was, was testing their nuclear command and control. And the Russians looked at that and said, we don't think this is a test. We think this is the real thing. And so as, the, as NATO started issuing launch codes for training purposes, the Russians went full alert, and all it would have taken was a bird to hiccup, and the missiles would have flown and the world would have ended. And Abel Archer, when Ronald Reagan found out about Abel Archer 83, he went pale. Ronald Reagan, Mr. Evil Empire, went pale. And that's when he said, we have to change this calculus. So do we really want to recreate a situation so that an American president goes pale to before we disarm or should we have already invented that wheel and just say, we don't need these weapons? Well, that's the situation in the world today. It's a very dangerous situation. I'm, I mean, I got a smile on my face to seem lively, but I'm depressed, man. I, I really am because, you know, this, this is, this is tragic. This is tragic what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. No, no doubt about it. It's, it's very real. And it's uh, I mean, there've been, you know, a number of times throughout, throughout the cold war, that you know it's come within a hair's breadth of nuclear annihilation and you know it's kind of taken for granted that that uh you know this could really just happen at, at any time with any kind of miscalculation or technological uh error or anything and so it's it's very serious and very urgent um before we kind of i, I want to answer this super chat we got a super chat from uh surge Lube, I'm going to totally butcher your name and I apologize. <laughs> Lubomodrov. Um, Dan and Scott, please refresh my memory. Were NATO forces destroying civilian infrastructure in, say, Yugoslavia? I recall some bridge and a TV station, at least. I don't know anything of this sort. Yeah, so they're asking about uh, if NATO was destroying civilian infrastructure in Yugoslavia. Do you want to give a quick answer on that, Scott? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, the way the West targets is we we take out not only military targets, but targets that facilitate the military. So there you would call them dual use targets. 
They can't be exclusively civilian in nature or else that becomes a war crime. But for instance, a television station is capable of transmitting uh, national level communications to the people. So it becomes a military target. A bridge, of course, is used to uh, transport equipment. So it becomes a military target. Unfortunately, on the bridge are usually buses filled with uh, civilians. Um, and then mistakes are made. If you recall, we bombed the Chinese embassy. Right. That's right. Um, you know, that, that was a mistake, um, I think. Uh, you know, that we, we claim it's a mistake uh, because a deliberate bombing of the embassy is a war crime. Um, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I see somebody saying we bomb hospitals. We do. Uh, and this is the danger when you, uh, when you start throwing bombs around is uh, as, as somebody who played a part in the targeting process for Operation Desert Storm. I can tell you that we, you know, the people I worked with put every effort into only targeting legitimate targets. The problem is a lot of these legitimate targets that we call legitimate are based upon intelligence that could be faulty. And that, that's the thing about international humanitarian law. Bombing a school doesn't make you a war criminal if you believed you were bombing something else because they get into the intent at the time the action was taken, not the result. Um, and, and, and so the, the United States has this very expansive outlook in terms of targeting. We, al we allow ourselves to target a very broad range of dual use targets on the belief that we're right. But as we found out in Afghanistan recently, when we fired a drone missile, it was supposed to be an ISIS terrorist and killed a family of 10. We're wrong more times than we're right. Um, you know, so yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. Now, you know, the Russians, I think have a better, a better take on Ukraine than we had on uh, Iraq because I mean, they know Ukraine is their neighbor and, and all that. So I, I fully anticipate that there will be um, very few uh, incidents of this nature. But again, we saw on TV last night, something got shot down over Kiev. They still don't know exactly what it was. Uh, but when you shoot down something over a city, gravity takes over and it damaged an apartment complex. And everybody's saying, well, you know, that means uh, Russia's targeting civilians. No, not at all. It means that war is hell. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I th you know, I think one of the important themes to discuss is kind of what has happened to you you know tracing this back of course to 2014 which you know if you're for keen observers they mean they understand what's gone on but i want to make sure all of our viewers understand how we got to this point even just since 2014 uh with you know the the uh coup that joe biden himself when he was vice president and victoria <laughs> newland who's yep. you know a top state department official was on the ground basically orchestrating um and that basically you know took out a neutral president uh who had ties to russia and installed a totally corrupt basically puppet tool of the u.s and basically saw ukraine destroyed economically and you know millions of my of people workers turned into migrants sent you know all over europe um to to try to eke it out and turned um ukraine itself into the poor man of europe and at the same time you know ultra ultra right wing neo-Nazi forces who, you know, were basically the muscle of this coup d'etat. Um, their militias were, were the Azov battalion in particular, but I think others were brought into the Ukrainian military and a war was started on the Eastern region of, of the Donbass, which is, which is, um, you know, what just declared uh, its independence in these two 
um, uh, basically statelets, small states, um, Lugansk and Donetsk. And so since then, you know, and this is the, this is what we will never, ever hear in U.S. media is how Ukraine has suffered immensely, um, in particular, these uh, uh, the Donbass and these, you know, in per- these ultra ultra right forces, these militias have waged this horrific war that continues to this day on um, on uh, Lugansk and, and Donetsk. And I want to show a couple of photos that I'm in touch with this uh, reporter um, uh, that let me just pull these up. So we have these photos. This just happened today, the third time this week, the third school this week that was bombed. Um, I mean, these are graphic images, so I apologize. But third time this week that a school was bombed in in, um, Donetsk and two civilians were killed or two teachers were killed, school teachers. So this this reporter, American independent reporter Patrick Lancaster is in there. Um, reporting on it he has youtube videos that he does here's here's patrick here's the school that was shelled and so you know while we hear this constant talk of of uh you know putin's war crimes and all these horrors in ukraine which you know not exactly terribly trust from very trustworthy sources we have total total silence from the mainstream media from cnn from the new york times from fox news on these horrific uh, killings that are happening um, in in Donetsk. Uh, here's another one: an oil plant. This is, you know, again, Patrick's reporting an oil plant in civilian area hit um, with with uh, by Ukraine. I mean, look at the size of that that weapon. I don't what you know. What can you tell us looking at that at that weapon, Scott? What does that look like to you? Well, uh, you you actually had a um, there there was a photograph that had a um, had this had the identif- the the. The, the identification there we you got a number up there that one right that's that's a production serial number okay, there was another see. one i saw that had like a 9m or um like right there this 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 thing here oh oh that last one i got it yep boom yep 9m79 this is a a, a totchka missile this is a uh a short range tactical uh, ballistic missile that the um that the uh you know ukrainian army has and um they obviously fired it and uh boom there it is um you know, but that that's the identifier right there of the uh, of, of the kind of missile. Right. So, I mean, it's, you know, I just it's it's infuriating to me that we just don't see any of this coverage that, you know, there's been, I think, 50,000 people killed um, in in the Donbass over the last seven years since 2014, when the war started there. I think f- 15 somewhere like 15. It's, look, it's any number. Any numbers to yeah, yeah. I thought I thought I saw fifty was like the total of, of people on both sides, you, uh, Ukrainians, um, and you know people people there. But and I think I thought it was thirteen, maybe it was thirteen thousand people from Donetsk and like three thousand civilians. I have to I have to look to be oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, you may be right. The, the the point is a lot of people are dying. Exactly. Um, so so this war did not start two days ago. Um, no, no, no. It it you know, started. A, well, you know, you, you bring up history. History is an amazing thing, if you know it. Um, you, know, you talk about these Nazis as if they appeared today. First of all, let's just let's just back up for a second. You know, I worked in the Soviet Union, and um, I don't know if I mentioned, but my, my wife's from the Soviet Union. She's from the Republic of Georgia. She's from the province of Abkhazia. 
she's from the city of Sukumi. And if you've studied the history of Georgia, you know that from 1992 to 1993, there was a civil war uh, and that uh, the, the Abkhazian minority brought in Chechens and Ingushetis and Russian troops um, and uh, fought a war against the Georgians. And they took over um, the city of Sukumi. Uh, 250,000 people were made homeless, including my wife and her family. 30,000 people were butchered. Um, there's, there's no love lost between her and the Russians. She blames them for what happened, rightfully so. Um, but she grew up in the Soviet Union and these are people who understand what Nazi Germany represented. You know, America, we sent guys overseas to fight them. And then at the end of the war, we ended up embracing a whole bunch of them. Werner von Braun came over and helped us put a man on the moon. Um, there was another guy that we embraced, a guy named Galen. Galen was the head of um, the, the, German, the, the German intelligence service in the, far, uh, you know, in the east. Uh, he ran the, the network. So as the Germans occupied uh, the Soviet Union, he created these human intelligence networks um, that were supposed to stay behind if the Russians advanced or infiltrate, you know, in advance of a German advance. Um, and it's an extensive organization, extensive. So at the end of the war, Galen turned this organization over to the United States, which took it over. And many of these guys that we were supporting um, were in the Ukraine and in, you know, in, in the eastern, in the Polish Ukrainian area. Um, you know, if you if you know anything about the history of that area, Poland got dismantled um, in 1939, and they got re redismantled in 1945, and uh, a big portion of Poland was given to Ukraine, and uh, the city of Lvov is actually one, one of the places. Um, but there there is the organization of uh, you know, of Ukrainian nationalism, uh, the Ukrainian Nationalist Army, whatever. They fought a brutal conflict with the with the with the Russians, I mean, uh, you know, they killed twenty-three thousand Russian soldiers. They lost two hundred thousand of their own in the in the, in the reprisal. We're talking about serious, serious conflict, all funded by the CIA. The CIA funded these people, provided them weapons, um, provided them the intelligence, um, and then when the when the conflict ended, they became a political group. We, we then turned them into a propaganda group, spread information against the Soviet Union. Um, the the fact is that these, uh, these, you know, we stopped funding them in, I believe, 1990 when the Cold War ended, but we always maintain these links to them. So the notion that the Nazi movement in Ukraine is a modern phenomenon is absurd. It's been there. It's been, uh, it's in the DNA of, of, uh, of Western Ukraine. And um, if you're a Soviet, like my wife was, if you're a Russian, you hate the Nazis with a visceral hatred that's hard to describe. Um, these are the people that invaded your country, uh, are responsible for the deaths between 23 and 30 million people. Uh, and so now we have a Ukrainian government in 2014. Uh, the Maidan, let's, let's back up for a second. I think I implied this before, I'll state it again. Uh, the Ukraine that emerged at the end of the Cold War uh, is the single most corrupt nation in Europe. It's a disgusting excuse for, 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 for a government. They're oligarchs that steal everything for their own wealth, and they let the, the they let the uh, Ukrainian people suffer. If you go through Ukraine, uh, you'll see giant mansions uh, that are connected with well-paved roads that connect to a little airport where they have their private jet. Beyond that, you have dirt roads and mud roads because the Ukrainian government doesn't take care of its people. Um, that's just the reality. It's just a corrupt, corrupt country. 
Um, and, and, and I think 2003, 2004, there was a, a revolution, um, the Orange Revolution, uh, one of those colored revolutions where the West uh, bounced out a, a, a pro-Russian government, I think Kravchuk was his name, and replaced him with um, with one guy. And then uh, some some girl came in, Timoshenko, whatever. Uh, and they were talking about moving to the West, becoming part of the European Union, et cetera. Um, Russia didn't like that, so there was some uh, some some politicking going on. And finally, the Russians uh, got a guy named uh, uh, Yanukovych, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, elected. And Yanukovych was a pro-Russian president who made some noises about the European Union. He didn't dismiss it totally, but he wasn't playing their game. And so what did the U.S. do? They orchestrated a coup. I mean, I, I love it that in America, when we have a a, a, a Giant demonstration that turns into a riot that storms the Capitol. It's an insurrection, and I'm not. I'm, I don't want to get political. What happened that day was horrible. It's an insult to democracy, uh, et cetera. But you know, we we lose our head over one day of rioting where the 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 the, the, the rioters actually peacefully left the Capitol uh, afterwards. Um, that doesn't excuse what they did, but we call that an insurrection. But in the Maidan, where we weaponized dissent. We brought in the Nazis, we, the people that we know, the people we trained, we organized, we know who they were. We brought them out of the woodwork, brought them to Kiev, turned them loose on the street where they slaughtered people, snipers, everybody, you know, the big fiction of the Russian, of the, of the Ukrainian government snipers. No, no, no. These were the Western Nazis firing down and blaming it on the, the government. They burned people alive. They murdered people and they took power. Now, they're not overwhelming in terms of political influence, but they're so radical that they intimidate people and they've taken over every aspect of the Russian government. They control ministries. They have battalions that have infiltrated the, the Ukrainian military. Their officers are everywhere in the Ukrainian command. These are Nazis, and the Russians hate them, despise them. And it's not just because of their politics. Uh, and the insult you get when somebody puts up the the, the Sig Heil thing or flies a swastika. In June of 2014, shortly after the Maidan, I believe June, May or June, um, you know, one of the first things that these Nazis did was pass laws that outlawed the Russian language. And then they started to brutalize the Russian population. And there's a significant pro-Russian population. Um, in Odessa, a port town with a significant Russian population, um, peaceful Russian activists got together and protested what these Nazis were doing. How did the Ukrainian government respond? They bust in neo-Nazis who took 30 to 50 of these people, put them into a building, and set the building on fire, killing them. Now, if 30 the 50 Americans had been shoved into a building and was lit on fire, we'd still be making movies about it. There'd be books written about it. It would be part of the daily you know, conversation of the nation of how did this happen? Damn those people who did this. The world doesn't even talk about this. You know where they talk about it? In Russia. Two months later, Lugansk and, uh, and Donetsk declared independence because they said, we don't want to be part of a Ukraine that burns Russian speakers alive. And they turned to, to Putin and said, we declared independence. Come on, take us in. You know what Putin said? No. I respect the integrity of, 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 of Ukraine. Uh, we'll find a way to fix this for you. We're going to help you defend yourselves. But no, no, you're part of Ukraine. You're not part of Russia. 
And that right. led to this brutal war. And then you had the Minsk Accords, 2015. They signed the Minsk Accords. The Ukrainian government signed it. It was a deal. Then in exchange for a ceasefire, um, and 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 the and the the, the Russians disarming. The Ukrainian government would grant them autonomy so that their Russian language and their Russian culture would be protected, but they would stay part of Ukraine. That was the deal. The nationalists, the Nazis, said, no, we're not going to let this happen. And they've held Ukraine hostage ever since. Just this past fall, uh, you know, the international community formed something called the Normandy Format. It's a, uh, a diplomatic outreach with Germany, France, the United Kingdom, and Ukraine. Russia's not a part of it. Russia was a facilitator. And they're supposed to <laughs> implement Minsk. What happened? They had their, their latest meeting, and the Russians said, hey, guys, you want to bring this crisis to an end? All you have to do is get the Ukrainians to implement Minsk. Then Donetsk and Lugansk will be given autonomy and reabsorbed. And this whole thing goes away. The, 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 the British, French, and the uh, Germans all said no. No, we're not going to pressure them to do that. And then they came out and gave their speeches. Oh, the Minsk process is alive. It's a diplomatic process. We're going to continue it. And the Russians went, no, we're not playing this game. And they released the transcripts. And the transcripts clearly show that the Europeans turned their back on it. And that's when Russia said, we're going to solve this problem ourselves, which is why we're going to war. This war is so much more complicated than people understand. It's about NATO expansion. It's about the abuse of Russian-speaking people. It's about the rise of, uh, of Nazi ideology. Um, you know, the last thing it's about is a crazy Russian president who on a whim decided to invade Ukraine to reconstitute the Soviet Union. It's not about any of that. It's about all this other stuff. But if you turn on TV today, all you hear about is how crazy Putin wants to rebuild the Soviet Union. Right. And, you know, this rise of neo-Nazism... Um, of these uh, in in you know Eastern Europe and in the Baltics, I mean this is not limited to Ukraine and, and you know I believe it's happening in Poland, Lithuania, Latvia. I mean my family um, is mostly from Lithuania a few generations back, and my, you know my family there was all murdered not by actual not by Nazis but by Lithuanian collaborator regime. <laughs> um, and so now you know under the EU and this and this um, myth of a double genocide that you know the that the soviets carried out you know the same crimes that the nazis did um which is totally ahistorical and the u and the eu is promoting it then they've basically normalized uh the, these these neo-nazis and so you have you know big demonstrations in uh in these eastern european capitals so it's a real serious phenomenon um that's that's really dangerous and you know i think we're going to continue to see um basically you know, as as the years go on, um, and this has basically just been nurtured by the EU and the US and NATO. Um, I want to ask you, you know, one of the things you talked about, I had this this article up for, for a few minutes, let me pull it, put it back. So we learned um, recently from 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 last month, we learned um, that, you know, which I think probably a lot of a lot of us would have assumed that the CIA has continued it's, it's training a new crop of, you know, what they're calling insurgents yeah. in in Ukraine. Um, I mean, here's an op ed that from today in the in the L.A. Times that is pretty good. Um, you know, it talks about the history of uh, of, you know, when the U.S. trained these the, the, C, the CIA trained these insurgents 
anti-Soviet insurgents, which, you know, basically the, the anti-Soviet ideologues are, you know, Nazis and Nazi Nazis. admirers and Nazi collaborators. So, you know, we can just call them what they are. Um, but, but you know, it, this article is interesting to me because it talks about one of the things that I've been saying over the past few days is Ukraine doesn't really have any chance of, you know, defeating Russia or, or emerging victorious from this. And so basically, NATO and the US, it seems to me, are just kind of, you know, not going to really step in. They're going to give uh, Ukraine some, you know, little weapons, some javelin, this. Um, but, you know, there's not really a whole lot Ukraine can do to repel the Russians um, to be able to to put up a serious fight. They can just, you know, kill civilians in, in the Donbass. Um, but you know, one of the things that's remarkable, like this this uh, passage from this article is towards the end. Uh, let's see. It, oh, here we go. So John uh, Renela, I don't know if, he, if I'm saying his name right, a historian of the CIA, wrote that this U.S. CIA program in 1949, quote, demonstrated a cold ruthlessness because the Ukrainian resistance had no hope of success without wider U.S. military involvement. And so, quote, America was, in fact, encouraging Ukrainians to go to their deaths. Yeah. And I get the sense, you know, this is essentially what's going on right now, is that Ukraine is basically cannon fodder for the U.S., for NATO, uh, to basically weaken, embarrass, have a PR war against Russia. And it's obviously not going as the, as their plan but you know it's just basically go and die for for the u.s ukrainians i mean is that your sense of what's happening here yeah i mean there first of all the the notion of ukrainian membership of nato has always been a a um a false hope um nato was never serious about bringing ukraine in they they promised ukraine and you would say well why why is that the case i mean a lot of people today say well you know ukraine's not a nato member what is what russia worried about well russia's worried about not a member that's protected by article 5 which is the common defense clause of the nato charter but uh but a but a friend of nato who could uh be dragged into a nato conflict under article 4 uh, which is where people say this is of concern to us for our security and NATO response. A lot of people don't realize that we're in Afghanistan, where we were. NATO was in Afghanistan under Article 4, not Article 5. It wasn't about collective defense. It's Article 4 that people recognize that the United States viewed Afghanistan as a threat to its security. So NATO members in consultation with the United States deployed in support of that operation. Um, and, and, and then if you take a look at what was going on in NATO, last year, 20,000 NATO troops were on Ukrainian soil. Dozens of American fighter aircraft were rotating through. Hundreds of American military personnel had established a permanent mission. We don't want to call it a base because then we'd have to report to Congress. It was a mission, which was a base where we trained the Ukrainians on NATO tactics using NATO equipment. Uh, the, NATO, the the Ukrainian army dressed like a NATO army. They were starting to be organized like a NATO army. And what happens when you look like a duck, you, you quack like a duck, walk like a duck, you're a duck. So even though people say, well, Ukraine wasn't a NATO member, they were. They were a de facto member of NATO. They had an army that was uh, an extension of NATO, so much so that Ukrainian troops were deploying overseas in support of NATO missions. Um, when, when NATO holds an exercise in Europe, 
Ukrainian troops go and train with the NATO forces. So the, the, the idea that you know, Russia had nothing to fear from, uh, from Ukraine is absurd in the extreme. Uh, Na- you know, Ukraine was very much a, um, a, a, a NATO member. Now you asked another. I got on a on a on a diversion there, but uh, what, what was part two of your question? You want me to? Well, basically, you know, is is Ukraine cannon fodder? Oh, cannon fodder. Right, right. Well, here comes the other. The big the big thing here is that um, why do you set Ukraine up like this if you're never let them going to be a, if you're never going to let them be a member and you know that the Russians have made their red line? You know, Putin's red line isn't something new. William Burns, who used to be the U.S. ambassador to Moscow. Um, in, in 2008, 2009, currently the director of the CIA, uh, wrote a memorandum in February of 2009 called Nyet Means Nyet. No means no. And what he was doing is he was, he was responding to the Russian response to the Bucharest summit, NATO Bucharest summit in 2008, where we invited Ukraine and Georgia to be a member. And Russia said, this is a red line. We, we will go to war over this. This is serious stuff. You can't do this. He wrote a memorandum where he very articulately outlined the Russian position correctly. And he said, the Russians have a legitimate point here. We need to do something about this. They ignored him. So we've been setting Ukraine up from the very start to be the fall guy. Why now? Well, what happened in August of uh, last year? The amazing American collapse in Afghanistan, where we failed to coordinate with our NATO allies, by the way. And so Germany, uh, I think Italy, and um, other, other, some other NATO allies who had major missions there, we're talking in the area of 9, 10, 12,000 troops, um, suddenly had to say, we got to get out of here and we don't have a plan. It was humiliating for NATO because A, they had to retreat with a mission un- incomplete, and B, the United States didn't coordinate with them all, left them on their own. So NATO's back there suddenly questioning their relevance. Why do we have a NATO? What is the purpose of NATO? Um, and, and now what's happened is the United States said, well, we've got to reinvigorate NATO. We've got to give them new purpose. And that new purpose will be the old purpose, Russia. Russia is the number one enemy. Russia is the foe. And what did NATO start to do? They kicked out Russian, uh, Russian officers from, the, from the, the Russian mission at NATO, called them spies. But when Russia said, um, where's the evidence? They went, we don't need any evidence. We just know what they're doing. So NATO provoked this crisis, <clears throat> set them up. Because NATO needs this. NATO thinks they need this to rejuvenate. And this is the best thing that ever, Jan Stolberg right now, it's like Christmas for him. I mean, he gets to mobilize the rapid reaction force for the first time in the history. He's mobilizing the rapid reaction force. Now, any military professional will be fall over laughing, saying, what? The what? Uh, is it's a joke. It's not serious. NATO's a joke. But he gets to mobilize 40,000 NATO troops to deploy them to Eastern Europe to confront the Russian bear. Um, NATO now has unity. Well, they don't have unity. If they did have unity, the Hungarian prime minister wouldn't have flown to Russia and signed a gas deal. Uh, Turkey would be on board with sanctions. Turkey's not. They're a big NATO member, second largest army in NATO. They're not on board. Bulgaria said no to, uh, to, to participating in this nonsense. Uh, France and Germany, although they're on board with sanctions, are now very hesitant. They didn't come into this willingly. There's a lot of fractures in NATO right now. And Stoltenberg, I think, is overplaying his hand. And, um, you know, this, this could be it. But the people, again, who are paying the price, because NATO is playing a political game right now. This is all about political gamesmanship. You know who's not playing a political game? Russia. And you know who's paying the price? The Ukrainians. 
they're the fall guy for this. I mean, I felt sorry for Zelensky when he gave when he made that uh, phone call the other day. You know, I'm alone. Who's coming here for me? Who's going to be here with me? You know, are you going to make me a member? Are you going to protect me? What about all the promises? Um, I mean, I felt sorry for the guy because he truly has been abandoned by the West. Right. I mean, let me uh, let me show you. Real, all right, two things I want to I want to talk about really quick, and we only have a few minutes left. I know I know you have to run. We've already been you know going for a solid hour here, um, but I mean, yeah, this is this is a you know I think this is a great interview, really informative. There's I mean I don't know anyone who has your you know depth of knowledge on these on these issues, Scott. So, I mean, you're talking about Zelensky and you know kind of being abandoned and thrown out there. This tweet from him, I think. Let me do I have it up? Yeah. Strengthening sanctions, concrete. This is after a phone call with uh with with Biden today. <laughs> Strengthening sanctions, concrete defense assistance, and an anti-war coalition, which sounds hilarious to me. I've just been discussed with POTUS. Grateful to America for the strong support to Ukraine. I mean, uh, is you know what, what's going on with Zelensky here? Is he just gonna keep getting strung along, or or what? Well. Let's 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 bring up history again. It's an inconvenient thing that has to be brought up every now and then. And the history is about Joe Biden and who he is and what he is. And I'm not talking about his vote for the Iraq war. I'm not talking about the fact that he's a warmonger, um, et cetera, et cetera. I'm talking about that on July 23rd of last year, he made a phone call to Afghan President uh, Ashraf Ghani, who was complaining that there were 15 to 20,000 uh, Taliban and pro-Taliban Pakistani insurgents pouring over the border at a time when the United States said, we're not going to be providing you close air support anymore. And he called up Biden. He said, my God, man, you have to help me. If you don't provide this, my government's going to collapse. Everything's going to go to hell in the ambassador. We're not going to survive a week, which was the exact opposite message that Biden was trying to shove down the American people's throat. So what did Biden do? He had a phone call with Ghani and he said, yo, dude, chill. What I need you to do is go out on TV and say, everything's okay. Everything will be all right. You need to say this. And here's the important line here. Even if it's not true. I'm not making this up. It's the, 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 the Afghans released a transcript. Even if it's not true. So you have the president of the United States telling a foreign leader to lie about one of the critical national security issues of the time, an issue that led to a disaster at, uh, at, at Kabul airport where 13 American military persons lost their lives, hundreds of Afghans lost their lives. This is an impeachable offense. My God, we wanted to impeach Trump making a phone call. This is a guy who told a national leader to lie to create a situation that resulted in the deaths of 13 Americans. And we're okay with it. So my point in bringing this up is that Joe Biden is a liar. All Joe Biden does is lie to create perception, manufacture perception. And that's what we're seeing here. Joe Biden made the phone call and got Zelensky to lie. Now, why would Zelensky lie? Well, where's Ashraf Ghani today? He's sitting in the West in a giant mansion with a multi-million dollar paycheck because he played the game. Zelensky understands that there's a lifeline for him and his family. I think the rumor has it. He are, they already purchased him a mansion in Miami um, that's worth millions. Uh, he's got a bank account that's stuffed with money. Um, all Zelensky has to do is play the game, play the role. And at the end, they're going to get him out and he's going to go into retirement. That's what we're seeing here. That's what's happening. Any American who believes Joe Biden anytime he opens his mouth is a fool. The man is a liar and he lies to shape perception. 
shape perception to deceive the American people about issues of critical national importance that more often than not result in the deaths of American service members. And as somebody put a lot of time in the Marine Corps to serve my country, that sort of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, I want to, you know, we promised to our viewers that, that we'll uh, answer the super chat question. So one, one other question we got. So can you shed light on Chechen fighters fighting with the Russians. I mean, I've seen, I've seen, you know, videos of like thousands of Chechens uh, basically prepared for for combat. Yeah. What exactly is going on there? Well, you that's know, from Soccer Papa. Thanks a lot for the for the super chat, Soccer. Uh, Russia fought two wars with Chechnya um, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, one war, which it lost, by the way, um, that created this autonomy, you know, this this autonomy uh, autonomous Chechen uh, thing, and then one war that uh, Russia won, uh, and in winning. Uh, they they installed a new Chechen um, system of government. Um, Chechen very clannish oriented. Uh, they got rid of the bad clans. They brought in the good clans, and the good clans have sworn allegiance to Russia. I mean, it's that easy. And the Chechen president is a very controversial guy, big mixed martial arts kind of guy, uh, bad guy, tough guy, whatever you want to say. But he's formed these special operations police units that are part of the Chechen. They're called Chechen military units, but they're integrated into the Russian National Guard system. Um, these Chechen units deployed to Syria and uh, because they're Muslim, and they interacted very effectively with the Syrian population, and they have a very good reputation for being disciplined and professional. Um, they also have a reputation for being Chechen, which means when the time comes, they can do the dirty deed and do it with a smile on their face. Um, from what I understand, a, a Chechen hunter battalion, which is a special operations unit that specializes in hunting down people. Uh, these are battalions that when they worked with the Russians, hunted down the Chechen um, terrorists near the end of the Chechen war. And they hunt down the Ingusheti uh, Islamic jihadists. They're very effective at going in, finding people and killing them. They've been brought in to hunt down the Azov battalion and the Nazis. They've been given the list, they've been given the cards, and they're, they're going to work. Um, I'm not gonna glorify it. I'm not gonna say it's right. You asked me, are there Chechens there? Yes, that's one thing. But now in addition to that, the, the uh, Chechen president has mobilized additional units of Chechen fighters. We're talking around 10,000 of them. Um, and they're gonna be unleashed on the Nazis. You know, this, this war isn't gonna end when the um, Ukrainian army eventually surrenders, which I believe will happen in a few days. They can't keep the fight up. Um, this war will end when the Nazis are destroyed politically and militarily. And when I say destroyed, I don't mean, you know, going into retirement. I mean dead. Uh, Russia's not playing a game here. These guys burned people alive. They slaughtered thousands of women and children in the Donbass. They are not going to emerge from this intact. And I'm not justifying this. I'm, you know, I believe in the rule of law. I believe if somebody's committed a crime, they should be arrested, brought to trial, and given every chance to defend themselves. They're shrouded with the presumption of innocence. Um, but you know what? Ukraine's not my country. <laughs> and they're going to use, they're gonna use um, frontier law. And that's what the Chechens are doing right now. They're bringing in some serious, serious frontier law. Um, and it, I, I, I actually think it's foolish of Russia to do this, to be honest. I think Russia would benefit more by arresting these people and holding a trial uh, so the world could see the extent of their crime. By bringing in the Chechens and, and getting blood revenge, um, you're going to their level. And no matter how justified you think it's going to be, 
the world's going to see it differently and interpret it differently. And you're going to do more harm to yourself from a reputation standpoint than you are. You know, revenge is never the right policy. Um, I personally believe we should have arrested Osama bin Laden and put him on trial. I personally believe that we shouldn't have military tribunals in Guantanamo Bay, but bring people here to New York and put them on trial in New York so the whole country can see the crimes that were perpetrated. <laughs> they were perpetrated. You know, I get a little concerned when we keep people in hiding in Gitmo and we never really are honest about what we charged them with. And yet 30 years or 20 years later, they're still there. But I, I think sunshine is the best disinfectant. If you've got a problem, you got to shine light on it. And I think the Russians are making a mistake by bringing the Chechens in. But the question is, why are they bringing in the Chechens? That's why they're bringing in the Chechens. Scott, I know you got to run. Um, I see a, a several comments. I don't, I don't know. There's this terrible echo. I don't know why. But it, but um, I see several comments uh, encouraging you to write a book. So I, we'll have at least a few buyers out of the YouTube comments here. But um, yeah, I mean, I thank you so much. I think we can leave it there. I mean, that's an incredible, um, you know, explanation of of everything happening and and how we've gotten to this point. So thank you very much, Scott Ritter, former. Uh, UN weapons inspector and expert on all things war and conflict. Well, not an expert, just a just just an interested party. <laughs> well, thank you very all much right, for having me. It was a very valuable conversation, and uh, I hope the uh, the people that were following it got got something out of it. Thanks for letting me. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, we have we have great a lot of a lot of really positive comments in uh, in the YouTube. So we'll, let's do it again soon. Uh, Absolutely. We'll see how things develop. I'd love to have you on. Well, again this story's soon. not going away. So <laughs> exactly. So everyone, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Mint Press News, and uh, and just you know keep watching, and we'll be having more content on. Thank you. Okay, Dan. Thanks a lot.